This is an ABC podcast. What idea did you have about Australia in 1991? What images came to mind when people said Australia? Yeah, none at all. None at all. When we applied, I probably thought that we wouldn't go. This is Editor Moikic. In the early 1990s, she and her husband Goran were living in Sarajevo, which was then part of Yugoslavia. Life for their family of four was good. Ordinary, but good. So we both worked, we had two young kids, Daria was eight, Elena was one year old. So just a, like an ordinary life. Daria was a sweet and serious little blonde kid who loved reading. Elena was a boisterous, smiley baby, still in nappies. But the economy, it wasn't doing so well. So Editor and Goran applied for Australian visas. And then their world was torn apart by the Bosnian War. I didn't have the mental energy to think about what's going to be in Australia. It was just important for me, for the four of us, to be together wherever. On Mars or in Australia, I just didn't care. I'm Faza Draki, and this is Days Like These. What would you do to keep your family together? Today, a story of a woman called Edita and her escape from war in Bosnia. Here's reporter Georgia Moody. It was April 1992 when snipers opened fire in the middle of Sarajevo. We never, ever expected the war, but no one does because war happens to other people. That's, that's, that's given, like you can't imagine. You can one day just wake up with artillery coming from the hills around town and snipers and no food, no way of leaving your town. It's just something that you can't imagine. In the early 1990s, the country editor grew up in, the former Yugoslavia, was breaking up into separate countries. Nationalism was on the rise. Fighting has spread to Bosnia. It's expected to be the fourth republic to approve an independence referendum, but Bosnia's Serbs want to remain with Serbia in the federation. Bosnia was becoming increasingly divided into three religious and ethnic groups. So the ethnicities in Bosnia are Serbian, which is predominantly related to Christian Orthodox Church, Croats that were predominantly Catholics, and Muslims. Muslim, of course, is not a nationality, but in Bosnia and in former Yugoslavia, it was used in that sense. But editor and her husband, Goran, were caught in the middle. My parents were... Catholics, so that equals Croats. And my husband's mom was Orthodox Serbian and his dad was a Muslim from Bosnia. So in our marriage, we have all three sides. And of course, it would have been completely unfair to declare ourselves as anything else but some sort of mix. I don't think ever remembering thinking about any of my friends as being Muslim, Serb, or Croat or anything else. They were just people, they were just friends. We thought that it would be impossible to divide Bosnia, like three ethnicities so intermixed. How do you divide that? I thought it was impossible. But it wasn't impossible. 
war began in April 1992. Violence flared as this crowd of Muslim and Croatian peace protesters came to the parliament building in Sarajevo. Snipers opened fire and several people were hit. Police believe they were fired by Serbs who were resisting the drive to independence. Koran and I were completely blocked, shocked, unable to think, unable to do anything. Goran went to work most days. I stayed with the children and we just hoped that it would stop soon. More than 200 people are now dead and over 1,000 are missing in the violence, which flared after the former Yugoslav Republic. A Serbian paramilitary unit backed by Yugoslav army tanks and anti-aircraft guns fought day-long street battles. The capital, Sarajevo, was besieged by the Bosnian Serb army and it was becoming harder and harder to leave. Flights stopped, the train stopped, then the buses stopped. But we're still thinking, no, it has to stop, this can't go on. But it did. And by the time I realised that I can't bear anymore thinking that there is no food for the kids, that any minute a grenade can come into the bedroom and kill us, I decided to leave. And I didn't see my mom since the beginning of the war. And I had to say, we're leaving. It's so difficult to make a decision like that. But I thought I had to take my children outside of the war zone. But fleeing Sarajevo would mean leaving Goran behind. Terribly difficult, terrifying decision to leave your husband behind. He couldn't leave because no men were allowed to exit. Like, they have to stay to fight and to work. It's not just Goran especially. No men were allowed to leave. About six weeks after the war broke out, Editor learnt that a convoy of private vehicles was leaving Sarajevo that day for Croatia. Women, children and the elderly would be able to leave the city. Editor and the two kids, eight-year-old Dario and one-year-old Elena, got ready to go. And what do you remember of the moment that you and Dario and Elena had to say goodbye to Goran? Mm. It's hard even to think about that or talk about that. When I decided to go, when we organised the car, it was all silent, no words, nothing, no promises. Quick kiss, you know, looking into each other's eyes. Not saying anything, because what can you say? And off we went, not knowing if ever we would get together again. You hope, you think, two weeks, two months, but somewhere deep inside you think, what if it's not? What if something happens? What if I never see him again? How will I survive that? And then you push it aside and you sort of, you know, give a water bottle to your baby and you hug your son 
and you switch your thoughts to something else easier to deal with. And so, editor drove. About 5,000 people were in the convoy, attempting to leave Sarajevo that day. We continued towards the exit of Sarajevo, but very, very slowly, like stop, start, stop, start, until we were moved to a side road and Serbian para-army came with balaclavas and machine guns. And we stayed there for a few hours, not knowing what was going to happen. And then we realised that we were taken hostages. That was reasonably early, but the stories about rapes and everything were already coming through rumours. And what do you think? Like, you know, it's a war. After a tense day of waiting, mothers with small children were allowed to find shelter in the houses next to the road. Editor and the kids found a spot to sleep in a room packed with other refugees. I was woken up in the middle of the night by um, like a door hitting the wall and a guy coming in with the balaclava and machine gun. And I thought, gosh, this is it. This is the end of me and my children. But he was actually only looking for space for another family. So we just shifted a bit on the floor and the new family came in and they closed the door. But it was like terrifying because you have no idea what is going to happen next and how long you're going to be there. That terror continued. The next day, editor and the kids returned to the car, hoping the convoy would keep moving. But no luck. They were kept hostage for one more night. We had no food and Elena was a baby, like she needed a change of nappies. There was no hot water in the bathroom. She screamed, but like, what do I do? You have to do that. You have to change her. No milk to put her to sleep at night, just cold water. But that's all you can do. The day after, they went back to the car to wait. And finally, almost at sunset, the convoy was allowed to keep moving. Editor and the kids had escaped. Once they were safe and sound, staying with friends in Croatia, Editor's sole focus became getting her husband out of Sarajevo. Goran had tried to organise a people smuggler, but his mixed ethnicity made it impossible. If you belong to a side then you could find connections easily. But if you didn't, then you lost. Like, you are in a nowhere land. No one wants to help you. I remember asking Goran about, what's the situation about your departure? Can you sort it out? And he told me this sort of terrible thing that I still remember, that it's a different price for people to leave Sarajevo, for men to leave Sarajevo. If you're a Serb, it's 100 Deutschmarks. That was the currency at the time in Bosnia. If you're Croat, it's 200. If you're Muslim, it's 300. But for someone who isn't either, it's just a shot in the head. And I was like, oh, my God, like, I can't believe that there is no way to leave Sarajevo. But there wasn't. Not long after editor escaped, the phone lines in and out of Sarajevo were cut. I was 
terrified most of the time because I had no news. The only way to exchange news mainly was just letters, but they traveled for months and there was no like post service in Bosnia that you couldn't really mail a letter. They went in and out with people who went in and out. The siege was dragging on and on for months. When Goran's letters did get through, the news from Sarajevo was only getting worse. They have constant shelling from the hills. They can't walk on the streets because the snipers are targeting everyone. Young kids, old people, anyone. It's like a Russian roulette on the streets of Sarajevo. ...to get supplies into the battered Sarajevo suburb of Dobrinja. The 30,000 people trapped there have survived by eating grass, nettles and meat from dogs, cats and pigeons. Up to 20 people were killed and well over 100 were injured when three shells fired from certain positions... People don't have electricity, they don't have water, they don't have food. Sometimes they eat boiled pasta or boiled rice in just water and maybe if they were lucky to find some spices, that was all they ate. They sometimes didn't have a shower for 20 or more days because if there was electricity, there was no water. If there was water, there was no electricity. After five months in Croatia, editor and the children were offered a place on a United Nations convoy to the UK. It meant moving even further away from Goran. But in Croatia, their lives were in limbo. In England, they'd be given refugee visas, housing, financial support. So Editor and the children moved all the way to the town of Penrith in Cumbria in northern England. From there, Editor continued her quest to somehow get Goran out of besieged Sarajevo. I tried everything really, like as uh, whatever I could imagine. I had so many interviews for the local papers. I went to the MP. I talked to everyone. I mean, everyone wanted to help, but no one could. It's just like, how can you get someone outside of a siege like that is blocked by three armies involved? The siege of Sarajevo continued. Month after month of almost no food, water or electricity, and constant shelling. It ended up being the longest siege in the history of modern warfare. After being separated from Goran for more than a year, Editor was desperate to get her husband to safety. With the help of some new friends in Penrith, she started hatching a big, bold plan to get him out of Bosnia. This lovely friend, Anna, an English lady who I met as soon as we came to Penrith, we went to see a friend of hers and she said maybe they can help. They have a studio. He's a producer. The idea was to reinvent Goran as a journalist. Foreign journalists were being airlifted in and out of Sarajevo by the United Nations Protection Force. And through that connection with this friend of a friend who engaged someone else from Channel 4 and from the National Union of Journalists in London. 
They organized what I would call a passport in inverted commas, a journalist's passport for Goran, a legal document that has Goran's name and photo that represented him as their employee of Channel 4. Goran would pretend to be a producer for the British TV network, Channel 4. It was risky. Attempting to escape on a fake press card could have you arrested. I mean, that was just the, you know, the first point in trying to get Goran out. Very far-fetched, of course, because you have to send that to Sarajevo somehow safely. And we managed to find a person in London who went regularly to Sarajevo to bring letters and parcels. He took that booklet to Goran who was, of course, like, could not believe his luck. But even with the press card, it was a difficult ask. This friend sent numerous faxes to Sarajevo, to UN Protection Forces building, explaining that Goran is their journalist who works on this programme that is very important, that he got stuck in Sarajevo by pure accident, that his family lives in London, that the war started and he was there and now he can't leave and they need him and they're losing money. But UN didn't really take that seriously enough, if I can call it like that. So ever since Goran got that journalist passport, he went to the um, UN building, UN Protection Forces building every day, and he would just like walk around and ask if he had any transport organised to go to the airport to be evacuated, but nothing happened. They needed more, something that proved beyond doubt that Goran was a real foreign journalist. Anna, she called the Guardian one day and asked, so if you are reporting from a war zone, what do you have to have to look like a real journalist? And she listened, nodded and said, OK, thank you. And then she hung up and said to me, he needs a flak jacket. I don't think I even knew what flak jacket was. I had to ask, what is that? And she explained to me, it's a bulletproof jacket. And I was like, you know, I I just sort of sank to the bottom of the sea. If it wasn't so serious, it would have been laughable. It was like dress-ups, but it was her husband's life on the line. Then they found out just how much the flak jacket was going to cost. So she phoned it around and got the information that they cost about £800, which was a huge amount of money for me and even for her. It just, like, looked impossible. And I thought, oh, my God, like, all this effort with all the faxes and the documents, pretty much for nothing. Like, I just was hopeless that anything can happen. Later that day, editor's friend Steve came to visit. That was Friday, and that evening, this young guy, he came that evening and I told him about this flag jacket, like, you know, I was in tears. And Steve, that was his name, said, you know, my uncle works for the British police. He can hire a flag jacket. And I'm saying, what? You know that, and I didn't want to finish, you know that you may not never come back. He said, don't worry about it. You know, he left and I didn't really think it was going to happen. 
But he turned up at our door the following day with a flag jacket in his hands, hired from the British police by someone who's never met us, who doesn't know who my husband is. And then it was like a mad race to get that jacket somehow to this guy in London. He was about to go to Sarajevo and again, like I had like an incredible luck with timing that someone from the area worked in London and went there every Sunday night. They took the jacket and delivered it to this guy in London who took it to Sarajevo, to Goran. Incredible, like beyond anybody's imagination. So literally the first time that Goran turned up at the UN building with his jacket on, they told him, yes, we're going to get you to the airport now. So they just drove him in this big, white UN vehicle to the airport. Goran, he is 183 centimetres and had 57 kilos then, like looked like a skeleton. The final hurdle was passing a checkpoint staffed by a UN border officer. The guy who looked at his former Yugoslavian passport that was about to legally become illegal and his frame so thin, his English very poor, just didn't really believe his story. So he questioned him and then he asked him, do you have any money? And then Goran pulled the money out and the British pounds were on the top. And I guess that maybe when this guy saw the, the British pounds, he either believed him or he lost patience and he thought, ah, whatever, one more Bosnian to leave Sarajevo, let him go. So Goran went into this aeroplane that didn't have any seats, just the mesh and the poles to hold on to with a few other people, some journalists and some Bosnians, and landed in Ancona in Italy, and Goran took a train to Rome. Goran told me about that train ride from Ancona to Rome. He just could not believe his eyes. He could not believe that he's free to move. He could not believe that he can buy a beer. He can buy a sandwich with fresh bread. So he did buy a sandwich with prosciutto and a beer, but for three hours and a bit on the train from Ancona to Rome, he wasn't able to finish it because his stomach was so small from been hungry most of the time for a year and a half that he just couldn't digest that amount of food in three and a half hours. In Rome, Goran applied for a refugee visa so he could join editor Dario and Elena in Penrith. After an agonising three-month wait, his visa was finally approved. So he bought a ticket for 9th of January 1994, 600 days, literally. Like when I looked at the date when we left Sarajevo and the date when we were reunited, it was exactly um, 600 days. Editor went with Dario, now 10, and Elena, now 3, to the Penrith train station to wait for Goran. It's like dusk, but it's also a bit of a mist, so you can't really see far. And there's no Goran, and I'm terrified. What happened? I know he's on that train. He told me. 
And the train's already left. Like, the train stopped just for two, three minutes. And then we see him, like, coming from the far end of the where the train was. And I just sort of whisper, oh, there he is. And Elena heard that. And she ran towards him screaming, Daddy! And she fell in a puddle, like in her beautiful, clean, washed clothes. She fell in a puddle and just sort of started screaming and we all ran towards her. And, you know, Goran picked her up and cleaned her face. And and somehow all that emotional charge that I had in my body that whole day, thinking, oh, my God, I think I'm going to explode when I see him. It somehow dissolved in a natural way. You're just helping a little child who's crying. No one of us could believe that he was actually there. I kind of really had to pinch myself every day, especially in the morning, waking in the same bed next to my husband after 600 days of not seeing him near me. I don't think there are words to describe the feeling of calm. Yes, I I was excited to see him, but also calm, like completeness. And I know that sounds like a cliche, and it's not like, you know, I just met him and I feel you complete me. But after living together and being married and having children, the husband and wife become like a single unit, I would say, and I really felt like a piece of me was missing all the time. And it came back and I felt complete. Not long after they reunited, the family faced another big change. Before the war in Bosnia began, Goran and Editor had applied for skilled migration visas to Australia. After a few months in England, the Moykic family moved to Melbourne, where they've lived ever since. Dario and Elena started school. Goran and Editor found jobs and made friends. They don't talk much about the war. Goran never wanted to go back and talk about Sarajevo. So everything I know about what happened in Sarajevo came from his letters. And I can't even imagine what that was like. I was there for a month and a half and it was terrible. But editor also remembers the luck she had, the kindness of their new friends in Cumbria and the community that grew around her family. Even though it's a really, really difficult experience, traumatic experience, it has made us much more resilient than an average person. It has made us even stronger in a way of understanding that love is all that is important in life. And I'm talking not just family, not just your partner and your children and your parents, but everyone. Like the love that we experience from that community in Cumbria saved us. Editor's memoir of escaping war-torn Sarajevo, Between, Before and After, has just been published by Hawkeye Books. Our reporter is Georgia Moody, with sound engineering by John Jacobs. 
Our executive producer is Sophie Townsend. This story was produced on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people. Hi, Miyuki Okiranta here. If you like stories that get at the heart of human experience, then I'd love it if you checked out my podcast, Earshot, where we eavesdrop on life as it's lived. I think I just held my dad's hand and just hoped that I was going somewhere safe. We're kicking off a new season and it's all about promises. Made, broken, kept and stretched. I couldn't promise that she would have a great life because she could never promise that to any child. But I promised that she would have a life and that I would look after her and be there for that life. His funding's been stripped. Like, stripped. I wanted to be metaphorically the dying person in the room. I wanted the members of parliament who were going to oppose this law to say it to my face. Just search for Earshot on the ABC Listen app and I'll catch you there. Love is great, but sometimes that's not enough. Promise me?